Morena. How's everyone doing? Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Lyndall. Um, very stoked to be speaking to you here this morning. Now, who, um, who's been loving this series on the parables so far? Uh, yeah, I have loved them. I Can we turn this down a little bit? Is that all right? Thank you. Um, uh, one of the standouts for me was the one that Joseph did a few weeks back where he was talking about, uh, for those of you who were here, he spoke on the different um, narrative arcs that outplay in our lives. And so um, it got me thinking a little bit about some of the arcs and narratives that have played out in my life. And one... Um, one of them that I have noticed, and perhaps um, you may have experienced something similar in your own life, uh, that the types of voices and opinions that I'm most drawn to have significantly changed over the years. So in my younger years, I wanted to hear preachers and authors who told it like it was. You know, they spoke in absolutes, uncertainties, rights from wrongs, who was in, who was out. Uh, and I think that this way of thinking can be helpful and necessary in certain stages of life. It can help form our need for order, help us while we're forming our sense of identity, and it can give us a sense of safety via certainty. Here uh, is where we learn to feel kind of in control. We know, we know what things are all about. Um, however, with time and age and experience, <laughs> life and wisdom teach us that life just isn't as black and white as we'd once believed. And in fact, if we're being honest, there seems to be far more grey <laughs> than there are absolutes. We find ourselves probably in a stage of life where we have perhaps more questions than answers. And we begin to recognize that there are multiple and perhaps infinite ways to observe and interpret and to try and make sense of things. And so I think part of the richness of parables is that they invite us beyond our attempts to create safety via certainty. Uh, they call us beyond the limits of binary and dualistic lenses. And they invite us into a more open-handed, open-hearted, perhaps open-minded approach. Um, and so uh, part of the maturing arc in my life has looked like perhaps uh, in my younger years being a person who would feel incredibly frustrated with mystery uh, and I'm slowly awakening into a person who is beginning to grasp the necessity of mystery, the beauty and the freedom and the grace that's only found in mystery. We are invited beyond the self-created sense of safety that certainty gives us and into vulnerability and trust. So, this morning... Uh, we are going to briefly explore three very different, and I'm even going to say contradicting interpretations of one of the most famous parables, the Good Samaritan. Um, and the 
point in this is that we're not going to try to decipher which is the most correct interpretation. Um, but what we're going to do is after uh, we briefly explore each of these three, we're going to take a time to pause and be still. It will be a time to listen, to reflect, and recognize that there can be truth in life for us in all three. Sound good? Awesome. Okay. So I'm going to read through the parable now. Um, and just so you know, the lenses uh, or the questions we're going to be asking afterward are, who is Jesus in this parable? And who am I in this parable? Cool? Awesome. Okay, so we're starting in Luke 10, verse 25. Just then, a religious scholar stood up with a question to test Jesus. Teacher, what do I need to do to get eternal life? He answered, what's written in God's law? How do you interpret it? He said that you love the Lord your God with all your passion and prayer and muscle and intelligence and that you love your neighbor as well as you do yourself. Good answer, said Jesus. Do that and you'll live. Looking for a loophole, he asked, and just how would you define neighbor? Jesus answered by telling a story. There was once a man traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho. On the way, he was attacked by robbers. They took his clothes, beat him up, and went off, leaving him half dead. Luckily, a priest was on his way down the same road. But when he saw him, he angled across to the other side. Then a Levite religious man showed up, and he also avoided the injured man. A Samaritan traveling the road came on him. When he saw the man's condition, his heart went out to him. He gave him first aid, disinfecting and bandaging his wounds. Then he lifted him onto his donkey, led him to an inn, and made him comfortable. In the morning, he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take good care of him. If it costs any more, put it on my bill. I'll pay you on my way back. So what do you think? Which of the three became a neighbor to the man attacked by robbers? The one who treated him kindly, the religion scholar responded. And Jesus said, go and do the same. Um, so a, a parable that I'm sure most people here would have, will be familiar with, one you've probably heard uh, many, many times. And I want to suggest that probably the most uh, commonly known interpretation for this is the idea that, uh, we've got that first aid, we are called to be good Samaritans. Um, this is a perspective that was held by Martin Luther King, Martin Luther King Jr. He, uh, if you go and Google some of the stuff he had to say from this perspective, it's really like awesome stuff he had to say. And so we have Jesus' command to go and do the same. Uh, and this has given motivation for some of the most beautiful, uh, wonderful organizations that have brought, um, that seek to bring help to humanity's greatest needs. 
Uh, we have seen, as a result of this, we've seen the church create orphanages, hospitals. Uh, we have ministries helping women out of slavery and trafficking. Uh, the church has sought to feed the poor uh, through to helping those who are in addiction. And so people who have lived out their interpretation of this parable in this way have significantly impacted the world in a profound way. I think uh, the other thing we, uh, we can see through this lens is we are reminded that God's heart is for the vulnerable and the needy. And that as we are made in his image, we should allow our hearts to be moved by compassion and stirred to action to our neighbor's need and not live in a way that only looks out for our own uh, convenience and comfort. It calls us to ask, how can we share our resources? How can we be showing kindness and love and hospitality and generosity? Uh, I think when we even extend that question out beyond just ourselves, like how radically different would the world be today if we all <laughs> chose to live as a, as a good Samaritan? What, uh, what would the world look like if we chose to live this way? So we're going to take our first pause for a moment to create space to listen and to reflect, to be still and allow God to speak to us through this passage. I just want to give, uh, for all of this, we're going to do three different pauses, and I just want to create a little safety net. Um, for some people, in times like in times of reflection, their minds tend to want to go toward uh, beating yourself up. Yeah, I, I, I need to try harder. I need to, I need to do better. Um, and I want you, if that is you, I want you to give yourself permission to stop those thoughts. And... Um, what I want us to understand is that when God speaks to us, he speaks through encouragement and an uplifting. So let's take a moment now to dwell on this understanding of the parable. God, we thank you that your heart is for us. You are a God who is moved by compassion uh, toward us. You aren't blind to the suffering uh, of this world. And so we thank you that as you so care for us, um, that we would also be those who understand that we are just like you were made in your image and that you would awaken in us that same heart of care and compassion. 
we invite you to give us hearts and eyes to see need that may not be so obvious. Uh, We ask you to awaken in us a, a generous spirit, a generous way of living. May the world be blessed because of the way you have changed us and cause us to live in a new way. Amen. Awesome. So, another way that this parable has been interpreted is to view the idea that Jesus is the Good Samaritan. Can we jump to There we go. That Jesus is actually, the story is about Jesus being the Good Samaritan. This is a very uh, widely held view. It was held by Augustine, Calvin, uh, Thomas Aquinas. Um, And so there's lots of uh, symbolism within the story that helps to support this idea that Jesus is the Good Samaritan, Uh, the idea that the man beaten up is an Adam. It's mankind. Uh, It's us. You know, we're, we're... alive but half dead. We are in need of rescuing. Uh, the priests uh, and the priest and the Levite uh, are seen to be examples of the old covenant and um, the old way and Jesus as the new Samaritan. Um, some believe that uh, when the good Samaritan at the end, he's saying, put, if there's any further cost, put it on my bill. And when I return, um, I'll, I'll cover it. And, and people believe that that's referring to the second return of Christ. Uh, and so with this interpretation of the parable, uh, we have this central theme that we are in need of saving. This idea that you cannot save yourself through good behavior and good works. Um, and so we see at the beginning of this passage, we have um, the scholar asking, how do I receive eternal life? And Jesus responds, Jesus responds uh, in the way that rabbis do. He returns a question for a question. What do you think? The guy says, love God and love people. And Jesus says, sure, yep, if you do that, you will live. Now, what I want to point out here is that this is what he's not saying. He's not saying, yeah, mate, give it a crack. Try your best to be a good boy even though, you know, it's hard sometimes, try to be a bit kinder and, and that's all you've got to do. That's how you can make sure you'll be saved. Uh, that's not what he's saying here. The context they're living in is that no one is sure of their salvation and so they have got these laws that everyone is desperately trying to interpret and understand and maintain themselves in order to ensure their own salvation. So there's a lot of box ticking, a lot of lines being drawn in the sand. Everyone's trying to figure in who's in, who's out. Uh, And so when Jesus, so when he says, love God, love people, and Jesus says, well, you know what? Go for it. You live this perfect life. You try to figure it out, and we'll see. We'll see how that goes. How's that working out for you? And so this scholar, still in this mindset, is still trying to figure out the technicalities. And he's like, okay, so so then who's my neighbor? Um, and again, there were different groups um, of different religious groups and different who's were ins and who's were outs. And they were all trying to figure out who their neighbor was. And they had a lot, mostly they had enemies. And the, this box of who my neighbor was for them got smaller and smaller. 
And so when Jesus gives this example, um, it really is, this, it's an outlandish display, or I would say an unrealistic uh, example of generosity from this man, a Samaritan nonetheless, toward a stranger who happens to also be his enemy. It's, it's ludicrous. The story is ludicrous. The, the fact that one that he even helps an enemy, the, the, the care that he shows him, the fact that he uh, puts this man on, a, on his donkey requires him to be put himself at great discomfort. The money that he spends, the, 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 it implies that he perhaps loses a whole day of travel and caring for this man, for a stranger, for an enemy. The idea that we would regularly be giving that much care to even the worst people we know, is it's ludicrous. It's, it's impossible. It's, it's exaggerated. It's not something that is realistic for us to achieve. He sets the bar impossibly high, pointing to the idea that the price of salvation is not something we can achieve through our own efforts. We're called to recognize that we are the ones who are broken. We are the ones in need of saving. We are in need of a saviour. We're going to pause again. God, we thank you that uh, in this parable we understand that you are not a God who distances himself from our lack. But an, uh, you are a God who meets us in our place of lack and brokenness. You are a God who binds up our wounds and cares for us. You're a God who um, takes our inability and gives us yours, your worthiness, your fullness in its place. We thank you that uh, for all our effort and all our trying, none of it is enough <laughs> to save ourselves. And so we surrender to the fact that we must trust that what you did was enough and that what you're doing, the work you continue to do in us, is enough. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, um, the theologian Robert Capon I thought that the Good Samaritan was an incorrect name for this parable. His understanding was that Jesus is the man who has been beaten and that 
this character should have been the central title name of this parable. In his book, Kingdom, Grace, Judgment, um, Capon points out um, that in the lead up to this passage, Jesus has been preaching over and over again this message of lastness, lostness, leastness, littleness, and death. If we jump to um, chapter 6, verse 20, uh, we see uh, famous um, passages of Scripture that say, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. We see in chapter 13, Indeed, there are those who are last who will be first and first who will be last. We see in the, in the, in the chapters before parables of lost sheep, lost coins, lost sons. And so just before we get to this um, chapter, we see in chapter 9, verse 51, this verse that says, When it came close to the time for his ascension, he gathered up his courage and steeled himself for the journey toward Jer Jerusalem. And so what we see here is Jesus focused on the fact that his death is imminent. And his message over and over again is that we are invited to follow into death with him and that interestingly in this death is where we'll find true life. I love these quotes from Capon that say, um, I think we've got them up there that say, um, everyone except Jesus remains firmly if not hopelessly committed to salvation by winning. And he goes on to say, but Grace works only in those who accept their lostness. So if Jesus is the man beaten up and left for dead, who are we in this parable? I want to come at this from a slightly unique uh, perspective. And it, uh, perhaps an interesting view is to picture the priest and the Levite versus the Samaritan uh, almost as caricatures caricatures on humanity's spectrum of ego, okay? So our ego is our sense of self. And in an ideal world, we would, um, we would all grow up in a safe, affirming environment that allows us to develop a healthy and secure sense of self. Um, however, we all experience wounding and parts of our sense of self uh, become, they're harmed and become damaged. And so part of how our ego functions is that its job is to seek to protect us from the pain that this wounding has caused. And unfortunately, um, the fragile aspects of our ego in seeking to protect us can actually result in causing some dysfunction in the way that we live and interact with others. Uh, so in seeking to protect us from feeling pain or protect our sense of self, our ego can manifest in causing us to struggle to admit fault and cause us to have like significant blind spots to the truth of like, 
how we really are being. Um, our In seeking to protect us, our ego can um, encourage us to get into the role of accuser and to be people who are making assumptions about the good intentions of others. Um, our ego, and, and again, this is our ego seeking to protect us, will um, cause us to live in a way where we separate and elevate ourselves from others. If we can feel superior and above others, then that it can be a place where we feel safe and okay. Um, anytime that we are experiencing triggers and overreactions, it's an indicator that it's your ego seeking to keep you safe and protected. When we take things personally, um, that's our ego trying to protect us. When we live in uh, overconfidence or overcompensating, uh, it's an ego's attempt to protect us. When we live... Um, gauging our sense of worth uh, through the lens of comparison and competition. It's an attempt to keep ourselves safe. Um, when we are obsessed with people pleasing in order to make sure that we're still in with everyone, we're still liked, we're still wanted. Um, when uh, other people, when people have differing opinions to you and we receive that as a threat. Uh, when we are attempting, and again, a lot of this is unconscious, when we're attempting to control people and control situations and it's, it's an attempt to keep ourselves safe, when we live in high emotional reactivity, when we are seeking worth and success, image, wealth, status, our job title, being the smartest in the room through to being a victim and a martyr. All of these are examples. And I hope people aren't like, oh my gosh, I hope no one's feeling exposed. Like I just just know every person in the room here is like, oh yeah, that's me. We're still, <laughs> there's some observing and some healing to do in this regard. So, when we are faced with our pain, our brokenness, our lack, our lostness, our leastness, it can feel unbearable. We hate it. And we, we have a natural inclination to want to avoid it. We desperately are seeking a remedy to this. Sometimes it feels like torment. And the solution often seems like, how can I fix this so I can get back to winning? How can I change myself, improve myself so I can be more likable? What can I be doing to achieve more status, more recognition? How can I earn more money to be keeping up with the Joneses? How can I, if I change the way I looked, maybe, maybe that's the problem. Maybe I could change my body. Maybe I could become more attractive. How can I learn more so that I'm never feeling like I'm not as smart as everyone else or, or whatever. Our fragile ego seeks to protect us by convincing us, by convincing ourselves that just like the priest and the Levite, that our survival and our salvation is found when we elevate ourselves, promote ourselves, preserve ourselves. But Jesus teaches us that the true healing and freedom for these parts of our lives comes by surrender and acceptance of our leastness, lostness, lastness. As we respond like the Samaritan and we humbly engage with our brokenness, there we meet Jesus who also embraced his leastness, lostness, lastness.
And he did this for us, as us. And when we enter this place, we know that he is in there with us. Um, what I hope this isn't um, to be mistaken as, is that this is not an invitation to self-loathing and to guilt and shame and condemning ourselves. Instead, this is an invitation to the freedom of letting go of my worth being tied to my achievements or my popularity or my net worth. Even when I lose, I'm okay because Jesus isn't measuring my worth by those standards anyway. As long as we're trying to find fulfillment and security and success, we will live our lives in mortal fear of losing it. But once we're willing to be lost, last and least, we will find true freedom. We're going to pause again. God, we thank you that um, you're not a God who is unfamiliar with pain and with suffering. You are a God who emptied himself and became one of us, who experienced life as us. You're the God who suffered And we thank you that we are able to meet you, the God who suffered, in our place of suffering. We thank you that in this place of letting go of our need to win, our need for approval, <laughs> that in our letting go of that is where we find true freedom and life and liberation. We thank you that you invite us into this process over and over again. That even in every uh, crisis we face and every time we fail and lose, it's all a beautiful opportunity to meet with you in suffering and to find freedom and liberation.
We thank you again that your heart is toward the broken. That you are our saviour and that you are our liberator. We invite you to continue to speak to us in these themes in the coming week and to open our hearts to uh, hear you more clearly and see things um, and see others the way you see them more easily. In Jesus' name, amen.